Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 15 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you just take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. First, our guide to getting a well-designed law firm website is free, and you can get it at lawyerist.com by clicking on websites at the top of the page. We'll send you the white paper, and we'll also invite you to tell us what you need so that we can help you get a great new mobile-friendly website for your firm. Second, our sponsor for today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. You can sign up for a free trial at callruby.com lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. If you decide to become a customer, Ruby will even waive the setup fee. So today, Aaron, I wanted to talk about an excellent plan for email that started as a an April Fool's joke in really poor taste. Okay. Did you see this either on Lawyerist or on Above the Law? I saw it on Above the Law. Uh, I'll sum it up here. Uh, what happened is the firm of, uh, I think it's pronounced Weil Gottschall. That's correct used uh, an, a new email policy as an April Fool's Day prank. Uh, basically, what they said is between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., nobody will be able to transmit email. The same is true on uh, on weekends and on vacation days. And um, what, what really kind of was the kicker is the last sentence of the email was, we are proud to be taking a leadership role in caring about our colleagues' quality of life. April the Fool's. Problem, yeah, the problem is it turns out to be an April Fool's joke, which is just, gosh, that's just horrible. So, um, the, but the thing is, uh, it's actually a great sensible email policy, and um, it's essentially identical to what many European corporations are doing. They're actually turning off email because there's lots of data now that shows that sending emails after hours is counterproductive and actually doesn't make anybody more efficient and people get less work done if they're expected to do that. So, Yeah, so like there are two issues here. One is that this is actually a really interesting idea that's probably worth talking about as an email policy. The other is just like the utter tone deafness of this firm who are finally open to having great work-life balance for their attorneys, April <laughs> Fools. I mean, yeah, that's horrible. I mean, I, I think all we need to say about that is it's horrible. But it's a great email policy. In fact, I think 11 p.m. is probably too late. You should probably stop emailing around the time that you go home to your family, like 6 p.m. or whatever. Um and so how do you do that? I mean, uh, the easiest way is set up the do not disturb on your phone, which is probably how you get notices about email in general. Um, I do that. I have my do not disturb kick in at about 5 p.m., I think. And then it kicks back on at like 8 a.m. in the morning. Um, 
and and just close Outlook or close your Gmail tab or whatever it is after you go home and don't open it. Just ignore email after hours. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have some mixed feelings about this, which are that if you're a small firm criminal defense lawyer, you may very well want to be able to take calls at three in the morning if someone's calling you from jail. And I think that's totally separate from this, which was mostly addressing workaholics who just cannot separate themselves from their work at any time, having nothing to do with the actual client emergencies. They just work way too much. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, there are definitely practice areas where emergency calls are a real thing and you either lose business or your clients get screwed if you don't answer them. And you can you can fiddle with the do not disturb settings on your phone so that your phone rings, but that you don't get email notifications or something along those lines. But, uh, you know, there there's a growing body of data saying that you basically you should not email after hours because it creates a toxic culture in your firm. Um, and it also doesn't improve your productivity. You, you could probably deal with those things more effectively in the morning. And uh, like if you want to draft an email at night, go ahead and draft it, but just hold on to it until the next day. And whatever so. your firm's email policy, you should not tease your associates about how bad their lives are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is a very, very good strategy. Today, I'm interviewing Karin Conroy, who has been writing for Lawyerist for a very long time. And we are talking about the five essential steps to a law firm marketing plan. And you'll find out that you've probably been starting on step four all along. So here is our interview together with these steps that you've been missing all these years. Hi, Karin. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Are you ready to introduce yourself, as is our tradition on the Lawyerist podcast? Sure. I am a marketing person for lawyers. I basically make websites for law firms and lawyers, have been for about a decade, and um, that's kind of the short elevator speech, I guess. Okay, but don't sell yourself short. I mean, you have a master's degree in marketing. You're not just a web developer. That's true. Yeah, I have an MBA from the University of California, and I went did my undergrad there in Minnesota, so I'm very familiar with the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and my MBA focused on marketing. Uh, so to a certain extent, we we are just not taking advantage of your talents if we limit our conversation to web design, which is great because what we're going to talk about today is developing a law firm marketing plan in five steps, right? That's it. And this is kind of this comes from a post that uh, you are working on, and um, we just wanted to talk through because some of these things are maybe easier to talk about than to than to demonstrate on in te- in print. So that'll well, you're going to do that series of posts, but um, but right now we're just going to talk through it. Yeah, and I think it would be great to kind of put some basic ideas out there. Yeah. So what are the five steps? Okay. And how did you come up with five? Why five? All right. Um, it's just a nice small number and I thought, you know, let's keep it simple. Um, I didn't have, you know, any real, uh, analysis put into it. I just wanted enough to cover the bases, but not, not so many that it just seems overwhelming. Okay. So, um, basically the first overview is just kind of like get a sense of what's out there, what you're good at figure out where you fit in, and then and then come up with a strategy. So the five steps are first identify the market, figure out, you know, 
who's out there, who the big players are, um, you know, how you can fit in. Second thing is a SWOT analysis. So do a little bit of um, figuring out in more detail where you fit into the market. Then do a competitive advantage. What's What do you offer that's unique? Um, and once again, uh, I'll kind of keep coming back to sort of this graph that you can make where you find a little open space that you fit in that you know, you're not overlapping with someone else. And then, and then um, step four is your marketing strategies, which is where people usually start. Like they usually start with, okay, I'm going to go out to Twitter and I'm going to go out to all these advertising options and whatever before they've put any thought into it. So that's step four. Last thing is figuring out your finances and money and um, all of that fun stuff. Cool. So let's take them one at a time here. Okay. Which, and one through three are kind of a whoa there, cowboy. Don't go straight to the marketing strategy. Let's do a little exactly. a little homework first. Right, exactly. So what about identifying your market? What do you mean by that? Okay, so that's um, asking questions about um, what you're really good at, what you're an expert at, and who your clients are. So I find that a lot of lawyers... Um, so only, so let's say, I mean, because I think our listeners are jumping right to oh, that sounds like figuring out what my practice area is, but that sounds like half of it. The other half is figuring out who your clients are going to be. Yeah, and that second half, I think, is more important than the first half. So okay. usually, um, especially newer attorneys will jump right to what, what are my practice areas um, and maybe even what can I make the most money in. And it has nothing to do with what they really want to be doing, what they're good at, and what people think of them for. So... Um, before you even get to that part, it should be thinking about who your client is. Who do you want to work with? There's a good, a couple good posts that are a little older back on the lawyerist that talk about your ideal client. So I have a couple clients over the years that I've worked with who I picture, and they're actual people. It's not just this kind of pie in the sky, you know, imaginary person, but they're actual clients who I picture all the time. If I could have every single client be like that person, I would be in heaven. I mean, everything about them was easy to work with, made my life easy, didn't um, haggle on prices, they paid their bills, you know, all of those things that you hope all of your clients are going to do. Yeah, I think the last time I wrote about finding an ideal client, I said, like, actually get out a magazine and put together a collage <laughs> of what they look like, give him or her a name. <laughs> I mean, that, it helps, right? I mean, totally. even if it's just looking back and knowing who your best client ever was and trying right. to figure out how to get more of them, it helps. Yeah. And a lot of times it, it makes life easier. So it shouldn't be like, how am I going to make my life so complicated and difficult? It's these are the clients who um, didn't didn't hassle me and trusted me. And, you know, especially in my work and probably I, I guess as a lawyer too you want people to believe you when you give them advice and you want them to trust that and not you know double check it you know two or three times with their neighbors and whoever else and um, you know just make things more difficult than they need to be um, so all of those things that that make that person you know the ideal client um, start with that and so here's let me try something out on you here, because uh, here's how I, I'm starting to think about it. So, you know, picking your practice area is fine, right? You're going to be a criminal defense lawyer or a personal injury lawyer, but that doesn't that doesn't actually help most people. What they really want to know when they walk in your office or look at your website or you, when your secretary answers the phone is, 
am I in the right place, right? Am I supposed to be here? They want to know if they are in the right place, not if, right. not if you are a criminal defense lawyer. And so what you're doing is you're identifying yourself by the clients you want to have, not forcing them to fit themselves into who you have decided you are, which is something vague like a criminal defense lawyer, which doesn't see, sound vague, but is vague. Right. And, you know, when they come to your website and they land on it and all they see is a picture of you and a list of where you went to school and all the things that you feel like you need to tell them instead of what kind of problems do you have? And I can answer those. I can solve those. I can help you get to the bottom of those. And maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's just um, you need assistance in a certain area or, you know, whatever it is in that practice area, they need to know that first you can answer that question or address that problem. And then here's the reasons why I can do that. And that's when they get to your bio page and look at your um, education and all that other stuff that matters. But I always say that's secondary versus, you know, addressing what they need first. Yeah. So it's the difference between, and I, you know, I, I see lots of things through the metric, through the lens of a website. So, but it's the first sentence is, you know, Sam Glover graduated from the University of Minnesota Law School, blah, 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 versus I represent small businesses in Minneapolis who uh, who have software to, to sell. Or, you know, I represent right. tech startups in Minneapolis. So I've told them if the, if whether they're in the right place rather than talking about what a great lawyer I am makes a huge difference. Yeah. Although that's, I've just jumped to point four now. Whoa there, cowboy. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. So one of my more popular sites way back in the day was this criminal defense attorney up in Seattle. And she positions everything. And she does like really kind of hardcore, dark criminal defense stuff. But so this, you know, is not necessarily ideal for everybody. But she her whole position is all about what's at stake and how she can um, take care of all these things that are at stake. So on the front page, she talks about, you know, your job, your marriage, your, um, maybe you're, you're an immigrant and you are going to lose your green card, your, you know, what are all these things that are at stake. And I recognize that these are, this is what you're super worried about. This is what you're coming to me with a concern and you're stressed about, and I know how to deal with this. And, um, and then, and then here's why, but that's the, you know, next question. And it's not her like walking out of a screen and saying, call, have you been injured in a, in a car accident? Call us now. You know, it's, it's not that cheesy, you know, old school lawyer website that, that you think of. So, um, so since you mentioned to number the second marketing plan step, I'm going to jump to it. What in the world is a SWOT analysis? That doesn't even sound like a word. <laughs> well, to, if you talk to any MBA, this is like, this is all you, you know, it's one of those like little catchphrase things that everybody talks about and is in every presentation that everybody does in business school. Um, so SWAT is... Okay, um, so for like for lawyers, this is like IRAC, but for business instead of legal briefs. You don't even know what that is. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> See, there now we're on now we're in an even playing field. It's okay. everybody know every lawyer knows what that so is. So what's that? Uh, it's it's a way of organizing your legal writing that we were all taught in law school since like the dawn of time. Okay. Um, all right. 
<laughs> so this is, yeah, exactly. So this is, this is kind of, this is probably somewhat similar because it's a, a way of organizing your thoughts and um, clarify, clarifying whether it's, um, it's a good business to be in or how you're going to kind of organize your business. It's, it's kind of a broad scale analysis. So let me So what does SWOT mean? So SWOT is S-W-O-T and it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So you start out first by just very generally talking about, um, you have to have some general idea of the business or the firm or what you're going to be setting up. So first you have to have done that step one, figuring out where you're going to fit in the market. Um, and, or like in business school, we'd be looking at a business like say Walmart and we'd have some basic information about it. So you to very generally talk about the strengths. Walmart's strengths is that they are the low-cost leader. That's it. That's their total, you know, that's their whole thing. So for a lawyer, it might be it might be experience, it might be young go-getter, it might be um I don't know what. So it might be that you worked, um, you know, if you're a brand new attorney, maybe you did a clerkship with some judge that focuses on a very specific kind of case. And so that's your practice area now. And so you have that to, you know, that makes you different that some other brand new attorney doesn't have. Um, so maybe you went to a great law school and you think that's a strength. Some people do. Um, maybe you have some story about why, you know, if you're like, let's just say criminal defense, maybe there's some specific reason um, why you went into criminal defense and, you know, People want to hear that kind of stuff that that matters and you know tells the story about your background. Although these aren't necessarily things that you're going to tell other people, though, right? This is like an internal analysis. Maybe it, I mean it could be definitely the story on your website that talks about you know how you got into that that um, practice area. So you could you could be starting to build the elements of what you're going to use in your marketing strategy later on. Right. Yeah. So let's say you know you had some horrible experience um, in college that drove you to go into criminal defense or um, somebody in your family did or whatever. And that's the story you keep telling over and over. There's some um, attorneys, one that I worked with that went through this really horrible divorce. And that was what got her to go into law school and decided that she was going to help other people, you know, not have such a horrible experience. And, you know, that was her whole story. And she told that on her website too. And that was part of her bio page. And it was part of her selling her kind of sales pitch where she described, I care because, you know, this is why. Um, so that's strengths, weaknesses. Um, and usually these can be summed up in a couple sentences at most. So okay. um, sometimes so it's just, like a list. It's a bullet pointed list, basically. Exactly. Um, and, so, you know, obviously you can I, I've seen all kinds where they go on for pages and pages, but it sh- you should be able to just kind of point to a few main things that that go under each category. Weaknesses uh, would obviously be the opposite. Um, So if you're going into personal injury, the cost for marketing and advertising is ridiculous and you're competing with firms that are spending thousands and thousands of dollars in that area. Um, Is that that something that's just going to completely be a deciding factor of maybe that's not the right area? Um, so not just weaknesses about you, but weaknesses about what's going on, um, in that whole area as well. Like if you're going to start an estate planning practice, 
you know, the fact that it might be extinct in five years. Yeah. Or you might not be able to pay your bills. <laughs> or maybe that's it. Maybe that's a threat, I guess. I don't, I don't know them very well. But. Yeah, actually, that would. That would be a threat. Um, so, or weakness, maybe if you're in the middle of Manhattan uh, and you're going to be going up against giant firms that bill thousands of dollars an hour and you're, you know, little old you that can barely pay rent, um, that's probably a weakness. So, um, so that weakness, that's weaknesses. And then opportunities and threats are, you know, kind of hand in hand, but the opposite also. So threats would be kind of like what you described, where if you're in estate planning and there's this technology that's coming down the road, that's potentially going to put you out of business or cut your business in half and, you know, reduce your earnings and make it make it not a good place to be, that would be a threat. Um, opportunities would be the opposite. If there's this technology that's coming down the road that's going to, you know, expand your reach where you can get out to, you know, thousands more people and you can offer your clients um, something that gives you all these different opportunities, there you go. That would be an opportunity. It seems like you almost ought to be able to draw a line down the middle of the paper, and for every threat, you should be able to spot an opportunity, and for every opportunity, you should be able to identify a threat, right? Not yeah. always, maybe. Yeah, but. not always, but yeah, it's usually done in a grid. Strengths and weaknesses up at the top, opportunities and threats down at the bottom, and they usually do, you know, kind of line up, um, And but not always. Sometimes it's a threat is just a threat, and, um, you know, that's just going to be a problem, and that might so be like something. So, like Zoom is going to drive low-level estate planning work out of the market in the next five to ten years, but the co- corresponding opportunity is high-level estate planning work will become even more valuable, maybe. Or maybe you think about a different practice area. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that's that's what all of this is, though. Is right. part of this is clarifying your business plan. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, maybe there's one. You know, a lot of times there's one or two significant things in this SWOT analysis that either really clarify that this is the right place to be or or the opposite. Really say, you know, I might need to reconsider. So that's the basic SWOT analysis. There's a million templates online and, you know, a million different places you can look. But that's the same case with all of these marketing things. I'm trying to kind of hone it down. But the goal to is just to try to get a, a picture of the challenges and opportunities that you have as well, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, but it's just to try and get a picture of what you're going about in marketing your practice. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just, um, so once we get into step three, I think we're almost there, but, uh, I'm going to talk about, there's this basic, very basic grid that our marketing professor would talk about. And he, he talked about it in terms of he worked with um, Acura when Acura was trying to figure out, well, become a brand and figure out where to position themselves. And it's really a, it's, I think it's called a positioning, positioning grid for lack of a better term. So it kind of blends all of these, the first three steps together. Um, And basically what he started by doing is um, figuring out two major features that were kind of um, client or customer needs. And so if you're talking about it in terms of a car, it would have been price and luxury. So, um, and then if you put it just on a, you know, XY grid, uh, you could you could graph out, you know, for example, BMW is going to be high on luxury, high on price. Uh, Honda is going to be kind of mid-range and, you know, kind of grid some of the major competitors um, 
on that grid. And then you, you know, very simply, I wouldn't do more than four to six, you know, people on this or competitors on the grid, find holes. So find a place where there really isn't anybody significant in the market where you can plop yourself right in that space and then describe it. And that's, that's, uh, identifying the market, that's kind of a SWOT analysis. And then it's also step three, which is this competitive advantage where you say, okay, this is what makes me different. I'm, you know, not necessarily high on price, but I'm high on um, luxury or I'm low on luxury and low on price. I'm, I'm, you know, Kia or whoever, however you're going to define your brand within that whole space as compared to what else is out there. So when I started my practice, I I realized that instinctively, my thing was I would meet lots of other lawyers, I would see what they're doing, and I would try and do the opposite of what they're doing. Is that kind of what you mean by a unique selling point? Yeah, so that goes... Or your, so, or your competitive advantage, anyway. That's more the competitive... So the step three that I haven't really covered clearly let's, is... Let's hit it. Com- all right, competitive advantage. The other... Um, thing that I would use to describe it is this thing called blue ocean strategy. And it's similar to that grid, but um, it's more in line with what you just described. It's figure out, especially in a market that's kind of dead or in trouble, figure out what everybody is doing, do the opposite, and you're going to do well. So a perfect, clear example in this blue ocean strategy of who they keep coming back to is uh, Branson, who does all the Virgin, Atlantic Virgin whatever. Mm -hmm. That's what he does. He goes into a marketplace like the airline industry and he literally graphs out exactly what they're doing. And he builds spaceships. Well, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But he's got an airline too. Yes. (laughs) So, um, and then he does the opposite. So um, he's, he, and he has plenty of money that he doesn't mind having things that fail, which is, you know, the huge risk that you're taking with any of these, any of these That goes under strengths. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, But in most cases, he does really well. And he definitely kind of carves his own path. And he's, you know, that kind of renegade, um, whatever, where that is his brand. He is the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Although maybe opposite is not quite right, is it? I mean, because... You know, if you say that, lawyers are like, what? You know, you everybody out over here is doing responsible work for a reasonable fee, and you're going to go charge too much and half-ass the work. Well, that obviously doesn't work, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't say opposite in every scenario, but opposite most specifically when it comes to marketing. So yeah. the way that you're positioning your firm, and there's so many kind of copycat companies that you see come out when anything does well. And that is not the strategy that I'm talking about. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. doing the opposite of that. So, you know, when the iPhone comes out or when even when just a good app comes out for your phone, there's always 50 other apps that come out that try to basically do almost the exact same thing. um, And they're garbage. And then they have, you know, they don't have that first mover's advantage. They, um, they have a much higher likelihood of failure. You know, uh, I've, I've been reading recently about the the first mover versus best mover, right? Like Apple has not been the first to do anything. They just try to do things better. Yeah. And and so, you know, like the iPhone was not the first smartphone, as everybody will point out. There was the Palm Trio and the BlackBerry and stuff, but and there were Windows phones. But the iPhone was just much, much better than anything else at the time and, and pr- maybe still is. But the... Um, 
but that doesn't translate well to law because anybody could pick up a, an iPhone at, you know, at, at one year old iPhone and see this is categorically better than its competition. But almost nobody can look at law firms and say, I can tell that you're better than somebody else. So merely differentiating yourself by saying, I'm going to do a better job than the next guy doesn't really work all that well. Yeah. I mean, the, I think there's a lot of truth in that best movers advantage, but I think my first reaction when you were saying that is that I think that ties more in with technology and maybe that's not true, but, um, that was just my first thought is that, yeah. um, you know, technology moves so fast that there is a benefit in kind of holding back and seeing what actually works. But when you're talking about especially service-based things where um, your expertise and the, the length of time you've been around and what you've had to say over time really matters, it does, it does make a difference to be out there first. Um, you get you become known for it, which right. is wh- where your brand and your reputation start overlapping and strengthening. Right. You know, and and when Casey Flaherty was on the podcast, he was saying, you know, that that idea that one firm is better than another is totally overrated. There's a threshold at which two firms are both perfectly competent, and the rest of it is down to other differentiating factors, like who is better at using technology to get the goal? Who's going to deliver higher quality Word documents um, so that I can edit my contracts down the road? It It's not all about who's the better lawyer, so you have to find other things to differentiate yourself. Yeah, yeah. So what are some examples? Can you, can you I know I'm put, totally putting you on the spot here, but what are some examples of how a solo or small firm might differentiate themselves in a unique way? Well, I mean, you know, it's a service. So when it comes down to it, it's how are you going to make your client happier than, you know, the guy down the street? Um, Are you, you know, obviously we want you to be the best lawyer and know what you're talking about and, um, you know, solve the problem or, you know, solve the case in the best possible way. But let's assume that you and the guy down the street can do that with an equal amount of, um, you know, quality. So then it's a matter of how do you, how do you respond, uh, to your clients? Are you, do you answer the phone? Do you have a receptionist? Do you, um, have a system for how you take your clients in and how you deal with them and how you respond? Do you have, you know, something like my case or, you know, some kind of a client management system so that, um, you can manage all of, all of your work? Do you have, a system for making sure that your clients understand what the process is going to be, what they're going to pay, what, you know, what, what the entire experience of working with a lawyer is going to be. Because for my work and for law firms, a lot of times, no, you know, your clients haven't done this before. And a lot of times my clients have never done a website before. So just understanding and having clarity in, in the whole process, that alone is, is a, big deal um it's we're so we're we're presuming competence and it's the and right i i'm a great lawyer and right i'm going to be really responsive lawyer i'm a great lawyer and i don't charge you for after hours phone calls right you know i'm a great lawyer and i'm super innovative you can contact me online at all times and i'll represent you on skype Uh, I'll, i'll communicate with you on skype or whatever it's it's the it's the and so i'm a competent lawyer and i think so because you know if if we go back to just websites alone I don't know from just being a layperson. I don't know how to know that you're a great lawyer. So I'm going to start by, you know, if your website looks good and if let's say you're you've been referred to me, I'm going to start by assuming that you can at least 
help me with my problem. Mm-hmm. And your website needs to convince me of that first. But then, but then it's all of that other stuff. Because how do you how do you explain I'm a great lawyer on the website? I mean, you can go through, you know, I've done all these cases and I've done, you know, this kind of work, but everybody says that. Well, yeah, how can you how can you demonstrate it credibly when it's you're the one talking about yourself? Right. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, nobody should believe anything on a lawyer's website because it's that lawyer bragging about themselves. Exactly. So yeah. you're right. Yeah, it's it's the it's the other stuff that's going to make up your mind. And and yeah, lawyers overstating their qualifications is a problem. But uh, but it's it's that's a different problem than what we're talking about right now. Right. Anyway, well, so. and that's just the reality. I mean, that's the same as. Uh, marketing people overstating what they sell. That's, that's our job. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if we didn't, <laughs> which is a de- more delicate balance, once the rules of ethics come into play, you know, we can't, we, we have a little bit more de- delicate balance, but you know, we, I talked with Keith Lee, I think about the danger of having a brand that is out of, um, out of whack with your reputation. Right. Like I, I kind of hate talking about branding, but it is an actual <laughs> thing. It mostly just because it's become such a tired word yeah. and it's starting to lose meaning just like most other words that get overused. But um, but the problem is, you know, if you advertise yourself as one thing and you turn out not to be that thing, then your reputation is going to quickly overtake your brand. So, right. And but then, you know, conversely, if you are doing it all right, then your brand and your reputation should be going hand in hand. And so Mm -hmm. all of those things should be building and supporting each other and, you know, boosting all of this effort and all of these, you know, all of these five steps should all be working together. So so we've gone through identifying your market slash ideal client conducting a SWOT analysis so you have a picture of what your what your resources at hand we've figured out what our unique selling point is can i get back on my horse and start talking marketing <laughs> strategy now that you've got all that stuff figured you've done all these different charts and graphs and figured out you know your plan and where you are and who you're addressing whose needs you're addressing then you figure out how to go and talk to them so then you do all of the different marketing strategies that include include advertising but that's only one part of it so I had a friend a long time ago say ask me what I did and I said something about marketing and then they said well what's the difference between that and advertising (laughs) I said oh okay well that's not my favorite question is there like a a sanctioned I mean I I know what I think the difference is but I'm curious is there like an officially sanctioned definition there well advertising is just one thing that you do within your whole marketing strategy. So, um, you know, it's usually the most visible part of your marketing strategy. So that's what people, that's why people just kind of confuse the two as one and the same, but it really isn't. I mean, your networking, your website, your, um, all your identity pieces, your logo, your brand, your, um, if you go out and do public speaking, all of these things that you're doing. I mean, think about in the day before, in the days before the internet, what marketing was. It, advertising was a small part of it, but networking and um, you know all of these other things that you do to build your company or your firm or you know whatever it is. That's all marketing. It's all just yeah. building, building. So, so, so let me let me see if I can guess at why we did one through three first. It seems to me that what we're doing is we're trying to sort of draw lines and connect the dots between each of those steps. Right. Right. Like if if one of my if my unique selling point is 
um, I'm going to leverage my time, um, leverage technology to be more efficient, and so I'll be able to lower my prices. And if one of my if if that's one of my strengths is tech savviness, and there's an opportunity in the market for people who want the convenience of being able to communicate with their lawyer over the internet, and my ideal client has a smartphone or is tech savvy enough to be a um, have you know understand video chat, then I can draw the line between all of those things, and I can say my ideal client is probably somebody who um, is too busy to come and meet with me uh, and, you know, might want to communicate and and maybe is is in looking for a, a slightly discounted service. And so you can you can say, OK, so that's my client. So it makes more sense to market to them in one way than another. Right. Did that, and did that make sense? Exactly. And so first of all, just where are they? You know, so, um, f- well, I'm going to compare me versus an attorney. So let's say you're you are going into estate planning and, um, or let's actually, let me compare what you described to, I've had some kind of older school firms, um, usually they're in the South and they're just established and they, you know, kind of have their partners are on the older side. They're not super tech savvy. They don't want the fanciest website, but they want it to look very nice. And their clients are maybe older, maybe company owners, or maybe they're doing, um, you know, very high net worth estate plans or something like that, where it has to look very nice and it has to support their reputation. But these, these are the opposite of what you just described. These are people who want that personal one, one-on-one attention They're They want to come into the office. They want to feel like they know their attorney. And so going to find- And if a young, if a young person who's you know, a digital native walks into their office, they might be really unhappy with it. So they're, they're not even trying for that crowd. Right. Um, but at the same time, they want their site to be um, enough, you know, good looking enough that it wouldn't turn them off. But at the same time, when they go to look for those clients, they're going to look in completely different places than, than you would versus where they are. So they're maybe going to country clubs and golf outings and they're going into their network, of course, and that's where they're going to go market. They're not going to go show up at, um, I don't know, where would you find your tech savvy young clients like that? Well, there, I think, uh, you might, you might be looking on the internet, but you might also be looking um, at you know meetups and get-togethers with yeah um, in real in meet space. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, even just um, I don't know, like younger focused events. You know, maybe there's certain kind of um, bar friendly events. Um, where you're going to find a younger crowd that you can appeal to and everything should line up with that. The look of your site, the styles that you're using, the imagery, all of that stuff. The way you dress when you do go to those events. Right, exactly. Like I can picture these older attorneys going into the country club and they've got their seersucker on. (laughs) they, (laughs) They are sitting down and having like, you know, a bourbon versus, you know, finding some kind of hipster crowd that's going to, you know, you're going to go somewhere where there's a bunch of food trucks and, you mm-hmm. know, do that whole thing. So the the bottom line here in the, the question 
in this marketing strategy that you're trying to answer is, okay, where are they? So let me find my people. So I'm not wasting time marketing to all these people who aren't my client. They're not my ideal client. They're not in my market. They're not the kind of work I do. Um, and I would dump a bunch of money into that unnecessarily. Well, and also where are they when they are receptive to, right. um, when they are either looking for a lawyer or receptive to, to kind of finding out who a lawyer is. Right. So, you know, it's, I've, I've made some pretty grotesque, uh, examples of lawyers pushing business cards on people, but like, you know, I've, it's, the one I can think of is when you're shopping for groceries and you go out front and there are people that are in your face trying to tell you about something. Oh, I hate that. I hate it. It's totally unwelcome. And what you don't want to be is unwelcome. But so many lawyers um, interject themselves and their business cards in unwelcome ways. And Right. Well, and I think that's because they didn't do steps one through three first. Right. Well, because they were also, <laughs> they weren't listening to your podcast. <laughs> I know. Well, now that now they won't have any excuse. But it's also completely not trustworthy. So you've got this guy sitting there at a folding table with a bucket and a picture of Jesus asking you for $2 as you walk out of Target. And I don't trust a single thing he has to say. And so it has nothing to do with whether I'm in line with whatever charity he claims to be representing, because maybe that's, you know, something that I would believe in if I trusted him. So I don't trust him. He's not in the right place. It's wrong he place, wrong time. Exactly. So, um, and wrong message really. Right. Yeah. He's not, he's not doing, following these marketing strategies. At all. <laughs> well, and I, so, cause here's what I often see is what should I do to market my practice? Get a website network, um, you know, all these things. And that's, there's a big checklist of things that you can do to market your practice, but those should all be options, right? Those are in your toolbox right. is what I, th- what I think we're getting at. And, you know, if, if you represent um, older, if you want to do probate law, you're most, and you're, you know, or whatever you do and you're, you have an, an aging clientele and your, your ideal clients are aging, you know, probably marketing yourself with an app is not the way to go. Right. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. Or, and, and, you know, teaching, uh, or, or, you know, networking is a, a great way to expand your reach and it almost always works, but it usually works best when you have an idea of what you're actually trying to accomplish and who you need to talk to and who you need to make friends with. So, right. Well, finding the right group to network to. I mean, I've gone into places where I knew immediately this is not, these are not my people. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I mean, for me, the best place, and you know, this is not just to, pitch this whole thing, but the best place for me, um, that I, the example I use all the time is my posts on the lawyerist, because it is just this, this audience that's listening to me and they're listening in a different way than if they saw an ad for my stuff, because, you know, there's an immediate level of distrust when you see anything that you think is an ad. And so when I'm talking about things that are helpful and, um, and I'm coming from a place of experience and expertise and all of these things, they listen in a different way. Um, and, you know, this has just been this amazing kind of platform for me to to build my own business. So this Lawyerist is amazing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is for me. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but that's a good point. And, and in fact, um, you know, you writing on Lawyerist is a lot like um, lawyers writing blogs for other people. 
and doing it right or wrong. I mean, you you get it, obviously. So, you know, when I when you started writing and when I invited you to write and I said, okay, but no self promotion. I don't even. I think you were just like, well, duh. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> and that, that was that that is that is the wrong message in the wrong place. Yeah, and that was the that's kind of the fear, and you don't want you don't want to come across that way because it it goes against the the entire point is to not be salesy. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that goes against the whole point. Um, okay. So step five. So strategies are, um, get to know the toolbox, but don't just try, you know, try to actually draw the lines between the tools at your disposal, which is everything from paid marketing online, offline billboards, yellow pages, whatever, um, networking websites, social media. Those are all just tools in the toolbox. And what you're trying to do is draw lines through um, your ideal client, your SWOT analysis, and your unique selling point to the tools in your toolbox. Yeah, so that you can, exactly, so that you can be wherever your people are. So the, I, I describe when people ask me if they should be using Twitter and Facebook and you know all the social media, I'd say, I'd describe it exactly that way. I said, they are just tools. If you think that you have potential clients in, there, sure, use it. But it's there's no magic golden ticket here. You're not going to just go onto Twitter and then bam, you're making an extra $500,000 a year. It's it's a way to find, you know, any of these are a way to find where your people are if they're there. But don't, if you are that older uh, attorney going into the, the country clubs and whatever, and your clients are not ever going to be on Twitter, don't waste your time. You don't sound much like a social media consultant. Right? <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were actually just trying to talk people out of Twitter. <laughs> it can be great if it's the right, you know, oh, it's the right I, thing. <laughs> it's just, bec- it's like this running joke right now with me and Aaron. <laughs> yet another, yet another consultant is, it's, it's happening less now that people have a better picture of it, but. I still feel like there's every once in a while somebody bops along who's just like Twitter is the answer to everything. Yeah. So. Well, and during the you know economic downturn, there was so many of my friends who were suddenly social media consultants, and you know it was funny because they were suddenly not working wherever they were. You know the week before, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was just like the fancy way of saying I'm unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. So step five is the one that um, that is the least obvious to me what it means, deter- determining your costs. Yeah, so this is tricky because um, depending on all of those other steps, it could be, there is no set template for this is how much money you should be spending on your marketing, um, especially when you start going down the road of, SEO and if you're going to do all of that kind of stuff and if you're in a very competitive market in a very competitive geographic region um, or if you're completely on the opposite end of that spectrum where you are an established firm and you really don't care about SEO and it's you know that's not at all how you get your clients so basically this is kind of a vague <laughs> category figuring out your budget and and then you know trying to stick to it and um, the best way to do that is to is to go through all these other steps figure out um, especially in step four where are these people are you going to be doing networking are you going to be going and doing specific events are you going to speak is that going to cost a certain amount um, and 
let your costs and your finances and, and somewhat your budget be determined by how much value you're going to get out of being at each of those places. So, so essentially what you're saying is don't do the attorney thing of randomly throwing money around and then being really cheap about other things. Right. Yeah. Don't just say, okay, how much can $10,000 get me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, so I've been, I've been, we've been doing lawyers. You've been doing lawyerist with us for years. Um, I've been doing it for years and I still don't have a great feel for, um, what lawyers are willing to pay for and what they're not. You know, I keep, I keep meeting lawyers who are throwing $5,000 a month at, um, the marketing company that shall not be named, or the website <laughs> company that shall not be named, and and they don't have any clear picture of what they're getting from it, but they think they're giving them a lot of money, so it's totally worth it. And right, uh, and then they get really angry if you offer to give them um, a free thing in exchange for an email address or something. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't have a great feel for what lawyers will pay for and what they won't. Um, I mean, you should have seen the the horror when uh, Clio decided to bump its monthly <laughs> its monthly fees for practice management software, which is arguably much more vital than a website that costs five thousand dollars a month. Well, um, here's the difference there. And so, and, how do we figure it out? Though? Yeah. So this is step one: is don't be sold. So um, the difference between Clio and that other firm that shall not be named is that that firm that shall not be named has these enormously successful salespeople. So don't go in and buy the undercoating. Don't just get sold on something, kind of like the Twitter we were just talking about you know, a few minutes ago, because your neighbor said that's a good idea. Don't get sold on spending $5,000 a month on SEO when you get a one-page summary of um, your analytics that is not as good as the free Google Analytics and doesn't tell you anything and basically just tells you that you've just wasted $5,000. Um, so that's step one. If you have a plan and you implement it and you realize where you people are and you go after them with you know logic and value in spending money because you know they're there, none of those things would fall into that as an answer. So you know, wasting a bunch of money on SEO um, just because some salesperson told you to doesn't fall in any of these categories that we well and we I think we have a, a sort of a, a bigger problem with that because we go to these conferences and CLEs and the people who are telling us about a thing um, in a marketing tool are often the people selling that tool I mean you know to be qu- quite frank you're right. the one telling us about marketing on lawyerist why should we believe you right um, part of the answer I think is that you're not promoting yourself on lawyerist um, other than by saying, here I am, I'm an expert and you should listen to me. Yeah. But um, but I also think, you know, it's it's always good to check against it. You know, I it's it's like, you know, listening to the used car salesman tell you why you should buy the beat up old Trans Am. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you go and look it up in the blue book? Uh, it's not as easy to look up Twitter in the blue book and figure out if it's worth your while. But there's a lot of information out there that you can use to compare what you're hearing from the salesperson you just have to take the time to do it, right? But yeah. I get the I get the impression that uh, a lot of lawyers have never taken the time to figure out if five thousand dollars a month is a reasonable amount to pay for a website. No, but you know, I I talk to for some reason a lot of people that are right in New York City, and if their competitor is spending that much, they get worried if they're not. So sure. 
it's um, there's that whole thing to deal well, with. And, and there is five thousand dollars is a totally reasonable amount of money to pay for a sophisticated online marketing strategy. Right. But it's important what you're getting for that. You know, one of our one of our other authors, Guy, is totally worth that type of money. Although he probably, I'm not even sure. Um, I, you'd get a ton of value for that money with him. Right. Um, but uh, but if you're just dumping it into a website and some cookie cutter SEO, that's not that's not what it costs. Right. To get that. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I guess. This is the vague, you know, this is the vague part of the, of the show. Um, Maybe it translates where, into make informed decisions. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's it starts out with this title of like financials and cost and it, and you expect to see numbers and it really, there aren't numbers. It's, you know, kind of tying everything back to all of these other points and saying, you know, it, it all depends. It depends on if you're a firm with 100 attorneys, of course your budget's going to be different than if you're a solo. So um, your numbers, they're, they're, it's almost impossible to expect there to be a, just a set you know, template for numbers. And I think there are resources out there to where you can very quickly find out is this ridiculous? Right. Um, you know, we in our forum, the lab, um, you know, ask, is this ridiculous? Somebody somebody offered to build me a website for $25,000. Is that a fair price? You'll get responses and you'll get informed responses uh, from me, from you, from other people. And, um, and I think you'll very quickly get that kind of feedback. So it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be that hard to get a better perspective on that. So how should we wrap all this up? How should we think about this? Um, I think pretty simply, like trying to think of it in a less than overwhelming way. Just think very basically, figure out where the market is, do a nice little graph and figure out where there's a hole that you can put yourself into that's different and sets you apart from everyone else. And then figure out who who needs those kinds of services and how to find them. That sounds pretty simple. Yeah, it sounds that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then and then once you know, you take the time to execute on that. You have a plan, you execute on it, you measure the results and see how it worked and use that to inform any modifications to your plan, right? And that's the thing is it's all about measuring and realizing that the reason we do that is that a lot of it might not work. And so don't keep wasting your time if it's not working and try something else and just keep trying. And that's the reason why marketing is not a science. And so... Don't don't get too bummed out if you try a thing here or there and it doesn't it doesn't work how you planned. So uh, experiment intelligently, um, measure the results, and revise accordingly. Exactly, that sounded better. <laughs> <laughs> I just made it up on the fly. <laughs> well, Karn, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your thoughts on this, and um, I hope you'll come back to be on our podcast again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear if anybody has thoughts or other input that I should reconsider when, as we're writing all these different posts. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years, and I regularly got compliments from callers, clients, potential clients, opposing counsel about the great receptionists from Ruby. Um, But I also loved being a Ruby customer because of the way they treated me. 
So quick story about why that is. When my first daughter was born, um, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone and I updated my status saying, hold my calls for 48 hours. Um, and I said that I was in the hospital with giving birth to my daughter. Or my wife was giving birth to my daughter. Um, and um, I didn't think anything more of it. They held my calls. It all went smoothly. And when I got back to my office a few days later, there was a beautiful little care package waiting for me from Ruby. Um, whoever had fielded that status update saw that I was in the hospital um, for the birth of my daughter, and they sent you know a rattle and a onesie and and a, a bib and a couple uh, some really nice things. It wasn't Ruby branded. It was just a really nice care package for the baby. And it was this really touching thing. And it was so touching that I'm still telling people about it years later. Um, Ruby still answers the phones for lawyerists. And I have to say that we've gotten great service from them throughout this time. I, I don't get care packages anymore, obviously, because I'm not having kids anymore. But it's just been a wonderful experience. So I think you should give it a try. And since Ruby will answer your phones for free for 14 days, uh, during the trial period, you've really got nothing to lose. So uh, I think you should go get started. And you can do that by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. Catch us next week for episode 16 when we talk with Dan Gershberg, a New York real estate lawyer and fellow legal podcaster about small firm practice and the future of law. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.